Good afternoon. Today is Friday, the 29th of September 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host today, Brian Gerrish. I'm delighted to be joined by two ladies. We've got uh, Debbie Evans, our very own nursing correspondent, and we're also delighted to have Sandy Adams with us. Now, today we're having a little bit of a focus on the environment. It's very clear that uh, the false agenda of climate change is being used to drive a huge number of policies, and those policies in turn are having a great effect on people's lives. So uh, in today's news, we're going to have a look at some of the ways that this works, and uh, hopefully this will give our audience the opportunity to um, get into their own research and uh, make up their own opinions on exactly what's happening. But uh, Debbie, we're going to kick off with yourself and intelligent cities, which of course is a strong theme, uh, links into global cities. Uh, but we've also touched on this subject with uh, correspondent Mark Anderson. Over to you. Yes, good afternoon, everyone. And um, of course, language is, is so important, isn't it? And thanks to people like Sandy, we've all become quite familiar with the term smart cities. But uh, have a check out of intelligent cities because we also have the intelligent cities challenge that's come straight from the European Commission. Now, <laughs> this is an EU initiative and it, it's, it's basically looking at green deals, cutting edge technologies, um, social resilience. But what does that actually mean? So when you go and look at the European intelligence challenge 2023 to 2025, you can see who's actually been selected. So I've just done a couple of screenshots for everybody that's watching that's in Europe. The next couple of screenshots may include your city. So we're looking at 64 core cities throughout 17 EU countries. Is your country listed here? Some of the ones that you will be familiar with, obviously, are Cork, Galway, Ibiza, Benidorm, Nicosia, Corfu. And here's some more on the next slide as well, just in case this is one of your cities. So we've got Tripoli, Valongo in Portugal. But not to be outdone, uh, the UK is fast catching up. So the UK Gov uh, launched just this month the smart tech to be trialled in towns and cities. This is going to be launched with £4 million of funding to boost local connectivity. Uh, this is basically street lamps um, and all singing, all dancing street lamps that are going to be able to charge your EVs. They're going to be able to boost your wireless connectivity. And of course, they're going to be able to track you and trace you. So let's have a look at an article from Computer Weekly that talks about the UK towns and cities gaining funding to trial this smart connectivity. And we really are looking at multi-purpose. Um, oh, I call them spies on pillars, actually. It's, it seems to be lampposts on pillars. So let's have a look and see where this is going to be piloted in the UK. And you can see there that if you're living in the authorities, Cambridgeshire County Council, Tees Valley Combined Authority, Royal Borough of Kingston-upon-Thames, Westminster City Council, Oxfordshire County Council and North Ayrshire Council, you are going to be getting this system very soon rolled out. So all of these smart lampposts that can pretty much track you and trace you and are spies. And just to end the intelligent city section here, a couple of uh, slides on a city you may not have heard of. This is Telosa. 
And this is going to be creating a new city in America. Now, this is a proposed utopia from a chap called Mark Law. He's a US billionaire. Uh, he's the former Walmart president. Telosa in Greek, by the way, means purpose. And you can see there from that slide that we're looking at uh, the population as being 1 million in the next five years, but jumping up to 40 million. So these smart cities are being proposed everywhere. In the middle of that slide, the tower that you could see was the Equitism Tower, which is meant to be the beacon of light. Well, Debbie, thank you very much for that. Well, your city or your new city with all of that wonderful or maybe not so wonderful architecture reminded me of Neom in the uh, Middle East. If you haven't seen the UK um, uh, discussion on that, have a look on the UK column website. But this is the linear city, which is supposedly going to be the place to live if it's ever built. Well, let's just have a look at uh, a report that came in on the BBC, and it was about the government delaying new environmental building rules. Now, this seemed unusual that we've had a lot of hype uh, about everything being environmentally friendly and uh, that corporations are going to do their best to save the planet. So my attention was caught by this report and what it said was the government is delaying putting into effect new environmental laws, forcing developers to improve countryside and wildlife habitats. And uh, this is to do with biodiversity net gain. And uh, if I look at another bit here, uh, we've got this, that the net gain policy was improved, was approved as part of the 2021 Environment Act. And the rules are designed to ensure developers leave the natural environment in a measurably better state than it was beforehand. So on top of the costs of a project, um, developers are going to be asked to contribute to improving the environment. That sounds good. Uh, but is it? Now, my eye was uh, caught by the UK Green Building Council, which said it was an industry body promoting sustainable development. The BBC, of course, just popped this in, but I decided to have a little look about uh, what this, you know, what this was really about. It said it was the voice of our sustainable built environment, and it said it's a membership-led industry network radically transforming the sustainability of the built environment, powered by 700 plus members. And it's, the for, it's at the forefront of positively influencing pos policy, identifying pathways to propel the sector forward sustainably and driving the solutions to transform our buildings, communities, cities and infrastructure. So it all sounds wonderful, but is it? And if we drill down into it, the first thing I thought we'd have a look at is, of course, people. And uh, a key question for me is always these sorts of questions. Who are these people? What's their real agenda? And should we trust their motives? I decided just to focus on two. So I've got Sunand Prasad here, who's the chair. And I also picked up on this lady, Victoria Quinlan, President Europe of Cortland. Now, we've got a short video clip of the, um, the chairman, Sunand Prasad, speaking. Uh, let's have a look at this clip. Smart is joining up or integrating packages of economic, social and technological measures so that they work together. For example, planning development or uh, writing development guidance to take into account infrastructure development and its consequences, such as the impact of increased property values, for example, can be factored into, into development and uh, forward projections. 
Smart, that's number one. Smart is selecting and scaling programs appropriate to each city and town. One thing that has emerged recently is just, uh, you know, especially in the UK, through the work of the Centre for Cities, of whom I am a trustee and Tony uh, is, is, um, chairs the research panel, or has done, is how different cities are from each other and how the idea that they can all converge to similar levels of growth and so on is not really tenable. And have a look at the, the Centre for Cities uh, City Facts uh, um, app which actually helps you to understand the differences between UK cities in great detail. And it's these differences and this adaptation of measures to actually the scale and the opportunities really in the city is what I would uh, call smart. In some places, for example, you would actually suggest that there'll be zero growth. But rather than lament the zero growth, how do we deal with that? Now, that would be smart. Smart is joining up with other cities so that the learning spreads. Uh, these, this beautiful graphic, by the way, is a, is a, is a diagram of, of inter worldwide internet connections. Uh, you can just about see the world emerging underneath that. Uh, so some organizations fear, uh, not so much cities necessarily, the idea of sharing too much information on grounds of competitiveness. But that era of hoarding intellectual property is surely over. And I think one of the, one of the features of the smart city will be open data, open sharing of of data in this way, uh, but actually it does come with a caution uh, and I think it requires a kind of a citizenry that is able to, to properly use it. Well, there we are. Should we trust that man? I mean, he's very measured. He comes across in a very nice way. But of course, ultimately, all of the policy is global. Now, in, in that uh, speech, he did mention the Centre for Cities. And if we just pop that up on screen, um, what, we, what we should be looking for here is who's involved in that. Well, the Wellcome Trust is a very powerful organisation that's fully involved, but we've got local authorities, chief executives, we've got Royal Mail who are interested in data, and we've also got the chief of staff of Lord Sainsbury involved. So once again, this is the great and good. We're not too sure what they're up to, but if we come back to our um, our look at uh, other big players. We mentioned um, uh, this lady. Now, the company is Cortland, and uh, Victoria here is appointed as uh, a new president. So let's have a look at uh, what she's really involved in. Uh, basically, Cortland is a UK-based platform which covers build-to-rent development and management, block management, and build-to-rent consultancy. And she's going to be really working alongside the US team to develop and lead the strategy for the growth of the company across Europe with a goal of bringing Cortland's resident-centric multifamily living across the Atlantic to ensure a better living experience. So the BBC in its article doesn't mention any of this. It just drops in the names of the organisations and we the public should apparently trust these people because really they just want to make a better world. Well, they do want to make a bit of profit on the side, of course. So if I had a bit more to this, here's Meet Cortland from their website. And uh, it says when it was founded, you can obviously go and read this yourself, but founded in 2005, Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, in 2017, they saw the opportunity to elevate the apartment living experience in UK. So this is nothing about helping the planet. 
This is about powerful corporations coming in in order to uh, build buildings for us to rent. We will own nothing, but we'll be happy. So if we give you a quote from Victoria Quinlan himself, uh, herself, I'm delighted to be joining Cortland during this exciting growth phase of its European platform. Cortland's unrivaled reputation and experience in the US combined with a host of incredible opportunity and a talented team in the UK and Ireland make this the perfect moment to further enhance a, quote, market leading building. So the real agenda, it seems to me, is actually to penetrate the UK market to enhance uh, business and profits. But this is not the only company in the background. We've got Argent uh, bringing together uh, some of Britain's most successful mixed-use places and uh, innovative, prolific real estate uh, companies in the US. So this is selling off Britain to developers. It's nothing about protecting the environment. We've got this gentleman who's in the background, Jerome Frost, OBA, uh, Arab chairman. And uh, if we have a little look at his track record, we quickly see that he's involved as a global cities leader. Uh, and so we know that he's involved in the global program and he leads the company's global community engagement program. And it says there, of course, again, he's a trustee of the UK Green Building Council. So the, bill, the BBC doesn't mention mentioned this at all, but it takes the UK column to bring this forward. And this is another organization connected to all this, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, bringing together transformational organizations to form a global community. Let's just have a look, a look at their video clip. So if you were just listening into the UK or you are just listening into the UK column news today, I'll just say a very glossy bit video. What is it to do with big business, ultimately big profits? But we're also going to have a mindset change, transformation, and these business organizations are going to lead us into the new world, or so they hope. Um, let's bring in Sandy Adams here, because Sandy, you're already going to take the audience through what's happening on the ground in UK, and some of it is pretty astonishing. Um, so welcome to UK Column News. Thank you very much, Brian. It's, it's great to be here. Thank you. Okay, well, the first thing that you pointed us to was Department for Energy Security and Net Zero. And I've got to say that I hadn't actually picked up that we now had a Department for Net Zero, but we know where that's going to head. And um, what you're pointing people to here is how to see what is coming. 
So uh, this um, graphic that we've got on screen is a map of UK and uh, the little dots indicate various things that are going on. So for example, if they are a light color, colored uh, purple, we've got everything from batteries to shoreline wave or small hydro uh, schemes. And then we've got a lot of it, uh, which is uh, solar voltaics and um, landfill gas. Your point here, uh, Sandy, was that when you look at these dots clustered all over UK, we should be asking ourselves, where is the farmland? Exactly. Um, and, and this is the big question. I mean, we've just we've just uh, celebrated a harvest festival in um, in Somerset, well, all, all over the world. And, um, you know, and, and where will where will the harvest be uh, in the future? Because we have um, most of the farmland um, at the moment seems to be given over to renewable energy, either solar panels, um, you know, big photovoltaic fields full of photovoltaic, um, we've got wind farms, we've got housing, these houses that no one will ever own, the banks will own them, um, and, and, and there's floodplain management. So um, I, I took that down really to Somerset and, and you know, also looking at the mapping there, because it, it, it's quite frightening when you realise that the, I've spoken to local farmers as well, and what's happening is the is the land is all being given over to solar panels. There's no room for crops or or or, or dairy um, or or meat production at all. Um, and this is increasing as well. Okay, Sandy, thank you very much for that. Now we popped this one on screen a little bit early, but this is uh, uh, where people can actually go to see what's happening. So this is North Somerset Council. We've got preferred options for local plan policies, and it's an interactive map. Now, I hope this works. I'm just going to um, get it operating on screen, and I'll talk through it, and then we'll come back to yourself. Now, you were kind enough to point it at this. An interactive map where you can click on various topics to see what's going on. So at the moment, I'm hovering over green belts. So this is rewilding. This shows you the sheer scale of the plans where land is not going to be directly farmland. I've now clicked on um, this is renewable energy areas and uh, going back up the uh, list here. This is local plan minerals coming on screen. I've got local green spaces. We're going to tick. We're going to go into retail. That's now popping up. And uh, we've got local transport. Let's click on that one. That appears on the screen. Uh, strategic uh, gaps, it calls itself. I'm not sure what that one is. Community facilities. And uh, then we're into the local plans. And each click shows us that there's more and more activity on the land. So on one hand, we're rewilding. But on the other hand, what you're demonstrating to us is that basically land is being taken away from farming. This is uh, a really interesting animation, which I encourage people to go to see and play with themselves. But it's obvious, uh, Sandy, isn't it, when you see this on a map? It is. And if you were to click onto the energy part of that map, you'll see that most of it goes pink. Which is, um, you know, which is again the, the photovoltaics and the, the wind farms. So it, the, literally the green disappears and it becomes completely energy based. So where is the food? Yeah. Um, 
Can I just come? Just, can I just come in there? Um, your point, uh, one of the key points that you've made of all this is, of course, that if people go and look at these local plans, you can see for yourselves what is not coming in the future, what's already happening. And when I had the opportunity to sit down and talk to you in person a couple of weeks ago, you stressed this was so important because many people just sort of see the policy coming in through the BBC, for example. But if they go and check the local plans for their own county, they can actually see the detail of what's happening now and what is coming in the future. And most people never look at this information and therefore then they're not aware of what's in the pipeline. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Now, what, what about this categorization of net, uh, sorry, of natural asset corporations and classes? This has got a particularly unpleasant title, I think. <laughs> it does, unfortunately. It's really the, the, the way that uh, land usage will change. Um, and this is what, uh, this is all shored up by stakeholder capitalism. Um, or I call it stakeholder communism, where everything is owned by big corporations. All our land is being bought up at the moment by corporate entities. Um, and I don't know whether um, people are aware, but people like um, corporations like BA are buying up great swathes of our land to offset their carbon credits, uh, of, of their carbon um, footprint. So what, what we're finding is that, the, that there is a plan to financialize the whole of nature and to make it into a big business, make it make it into a big sort of, all, all aspects of nature will be made into a business. And this is really, um, uh, I, I've been talking to a lot of Somerset farmers this week because uh, they've, they've been, had, had to um, be, you know, sort of put forward to look at how they can actually diversify. Now, this diversification is not, it's not, uh, it's not something they choose to do. It's something they're being forced to do. Um, and instead of farming, they're being asked to look at other ways of making money out of their land. Um, and they're calling it, um, basically, they, they, they had a 12-hour consultation, free consultation, with um, an NGO called FWAG, which is the Farming and Wildlife Advisory Group. Um, which is a registered charity, funnily enough. It's come from DEFRA. It's a part of DEFRA. Um, and they represent farmers and landowners in the delivery of wildlife conservation. Uh, and their idea is to promote and enhance the conservation of wildlife, the environment and the landscape in relation to modern agricultural needs. Now, this is all part of the government's uh, Green Recovery Challenge Fund, which is highly, highly funded by Rishi Sunak's 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution that was put forward in 2020, where the government pledged 40 million uh, in its second round of funding to fund conservation NGOs like FWAG. Um, and there's a, there's, there's a number of other um, conservation NGOs that are receiving this money to push uh, the conservation of farmland and not the growing of food. So this is what um, I, I gleaned from this particular farmer. At the moment, the farmers get something called the basic, um, basic payment. It's a pay, basic payment scheme. And that's their, their normal funding that they get from the government. But this is being replaced by um, something called the SFI, which is a sustainable farming incentive scheme. And what, what he 
told me was at the moment he gets say nineteen thousand from from the basic pension scheme, um, basic basic payment scheme, um, and this will halve next year. And then in the next three years, it will go down to 25% of that. And then nothing unless they sign up to the SFI, which is the Sustainable Farming Incentive Scheme. And this will impoverish farmers because what the idea was when this man came from the, from the, from FWAG to give them this 12 hour seminar, basically, was all about how can you stop, you know, your farming and do more that is actually a business. Things like um, you can have herbal lays, which are basically, it's rewilding. And, um, and also they came up with all sorts of ideas of how you could actually make money because you're not going to make money out of farming. So that's it. Well, and of, of course, the basis of this, and I'm just going to emphasize for our audience today, these are policies which are coming in from global bases, from the UN Agenda 2030. These are not national policies that are coming all the way down to the farmer. Now, if you are talking to farmers in the Somerset area, um, I'm going to come back to Slough because a couple of days ago, I was talking to Mike from Slough and uh, Mike's been talking about ULES, but to my surprise, he suddenly got onto the subject of farming. Let's have a little listen to this clip. You know, you see things, uh, little snippets on, on the uh, TV, on social media. So I did write to them. I won't say who it was because he, I, I didn't ask permission to reveal his name. But I did write to a, um, the managing director of quite a large farm uh, down in the Kent, sort of Sussex area on the borders there. Um, and he kindly came back to me and I was interested in these government, um, if you go onto like the government website, uh, for quite a while now, they these sustainable initiatives that they're putting out where farmers take land out of production and let them sort of just rewild. And he told me that, I mean, we, we were all hoping, obviously, that the governments, um, especially with the war in Ukraine, would be getting behind farmers now uh, and helping them, you know, grow food for, for the British people, which is a lot, obviously a lot better than um, importing it. And he said that the rhetoric is that they're supporting farmers grow local produce, but they're not really doing anything about it. Um, so what's happened is a lot of farmers are being paid to take large swathes of land out of production. So, Sandy, there you are, gentleman in Slough. He's uh, seeing what's happening. And of course, he's looking at factual information. And I've used fact there uh, because, as we're going to see in a minute, there are people who would have who would have us believe that what we are talking about is some form of conspiracy. But before we get there, just very quickly, uh, tell us what we're going to be able to eat. Well, um, this is um, this is something that's being pushed by our government, which is the Eat uh, Lancet Commission on Food, Planet and Health, and um, they're they're sort of putting this this uh, document together. And I see it really as a as a rationing. Uh, they won't ever say the word rationing, but actually in the Eat um, Lancet document, you will find that in fact. Um, They've, they've, they've got a plan to ration our 
our dairy and our meat intake. Um, and they've, if you actually break it down, they've got 16 kilograms per year for beef, which works out of a, at a third of a hamburger a week. That's what that's that's your lot. Um, and 90 kilograms of milk a year, and that's one pint of milk per week. But your cheese has to come out of that. So if you eat cheese, then you have to reduce your one pint of milk. So this is where it's going, and this is what's being promoted, because what they're saying is, how do we feed a whole, whole planet of people? There's not enough to go around, given the population. But as we know, particularly in Europe, we're not even at replacement level. So where are they coming up with these statistics? That's what I'd like to know. Uh, well, we'd all like to know that, uh, Sandy. Thank you for that. Now, very quickly here, um, I think this is amazing hypocrisy. We're, we're going back to 2020, but we've got a North Somerset councillor who was declaring a nature emergency. Um, so if we have a look at, uh, just look at this on screen, as it were, but um, that's the headline. North Somerset Council declares nature emergency to resist the destruction of habitats and ensure developments boost biodiversity. But as we've seen from the local plans, destruction of the environment is what the whole thing is about. Notice that this has been produced by a local democracy reporter. So that's the BBC at work. Now, Sandy, you have done a huge amount of work on all this environmental subject. You deal with facts and documents. Uh, but there's one particular lady who has been uh, very, very cutting and I think unkind and wrong in her description of you. Um, she is the mayor of Glastonbury. And uh, uh, we'd just say, first of all, that part of her background is that she's been active with Extinction Rebellion. Uh, this is an article uh, from a little while ago, uh, few, well, not so long ago, actually. It was July uh, 2022. But she was trying to save an oak tree that was very old from developments for the 303. And uh, I just found it incredible that this lady is trying to do that. But at the same time, if you talk about destruction through the uh, net zero policies, um, she's coming back. And this is a very interesting email sent into the UK column um, where a lady is uh, challenging the green mayor of Glastonbury, India Don Francesco. And uh, one of the reasons she's doing that is because when you spoke out at the, um, at the town council, on the subject of what was happening with uh, sustainable development goals. Uh, the mayor described you as a mob. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, yes. I mean, uh, from the transcript, she, she did say um, that she said, uh, a Glastonbury, a group came to the council, a mob. Really, I say a mob because there are a hundred and that constitutes a mob. But the fact is that actually these are the people of Glastonbury who are concerned, concerned people who had come along to uh, try and work out what, what was going on with 15-minute cities and, um, you know, low-traffic neighbourhoods and all that sort of thing. And she, because they, they, there was a lot of them, she called it a mob. And these are the people that she represents. And uh, the, the people of Glastonbury are not too happy and have... Uh, actually asked, uh, are asking for an apology for what she said. Uh, this, this is, uh, <laughs> yes, this is correct, and, and well, they might. But of course, she didn't only have a go at you, she also had a go at the UK column. Let's have a listen to what she actually has said. What happened next 
YouTube happened next, so they were filming, which, you know, we film it anyway. We film all of our council meetings. Big thing, and it goes out. Uh, it, it actually is streamed live. Um, what had been done is she captured it, captured the end bit, where everyone's going, yeah, no 50-minute cities, and basically said that they'd stopped the 15-minute city being in our town. Heroes. Yeah? Bravo. Thank you. You know, and so it's like, oh gosh, that, that was a bit weird. So this, this person who put it out, untrustworthy, uh, UK Column, I don't know if anyone heard of UK Column, it's a media outlet, which is actually, uh, so me, yeah, thank you. Yeah, that one. Uh, but on the, on, on the internet, it says, uh, so under media bias fact check, which is actually a thing and they're independent, it's rated strong right wing biased conspiracy website frequently promotes false and misle or misleading info, uses inciting language. So this is her platform, okay? And I'm not just going to... Uh, UK column. Now, they sometimes do stuff which is, you know, just normal and freedom and all this, but sometimes they go. So it's, I'm not, you know, it's, it's, yeah. Anyway, it's the rising of these things that I would like people, this is a cautionary tale bit, okay, because it's coming to a, a town near you. Well, for our audience, there you have it. That's the intellectual standard of the Green Mayor of Glastonbury, who's been incredibly rude about uh, local townspeople who've spoken up on the subject of uh, Agenda 2030 and rewilding all these subjects. She doesn't look at the facts, but of course, lots of wonderful hand mo movements. And she's very keen to uh, demean the UK column. Um, and she's got all of her information from a thing quote, a thing, quote, and it's independent. So, San Sandy, just uh, very briefly, 10 seconds to finish it off. Where did this mayor come from? I hear she's a priestess, but that may be an allegation. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if she's a priestess of Avalon. I have no idea. But I know she's very caught up with the, with the goddess movement. And that's fine. She, that's her choice. That's no, nothing wrong with that. But she, um, yeah, she's very ill-informed. Uh, and very confused because she she seems to think that we are being she she made an allegation that I was actually working for the oil companies and that I was receiving money from the oil companies to to put this out. But actually, it's you know you look at Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion, you know who funds them. So yeah, it's she's very confused, very confused woman, and very ill informed. I also think she's very worried. Well, let's move on to the subject of conspiracy, because, of course, it seems that the legacy media, formerly the mainstream media, is very concerned about alternative media challenging their output. Uh, but I picked up on this Politico article um, mainly because um, uh, it was just so dire. So the headline here, how conspiracy theories infected British politics from COVID jabs to sex education. The language of conspiracy theories is creeping into the mainstream. This is written by a lady called Bethany Dawson. And I decided just to have a little look at her to get a measure of what sort of journalists we're dealing with. Well, it didn't take long to get a feeling for this lady. So here she is. And the caption is, uh, this Barbie is totally overexcited. And she's got a special eye makeup on. But if you're not happy with that, there's a second one. Current me is very happy with my pride makeup. 
but future me is fuming about all the glitter I will find in my hair for the next hundred years. And uh, we've got one here. My night is, is going to be so good. And what she what is she referring to? Was well, somebody's put the Barbie is a two hour wokeathon brimming with feminist lectures and nuclear level rage against men. So I don't know what our viewers think about this, but is this a mature discerning journalist or is she really a very immature schoolgirl? Well, that's one problem, but the second problem is where her training comes from. And so uh, she admits a little bit here. She said she's only been a John Schofield fellow since December. This is uh, uh, from a little while ago and can already say it has made a monumental difference to my career. This is totally deserved. And she's referring to the fact that Susie Schofield, the founder, has just got the MBE and the King's Birthday Honours. Well, as you do. And then on the right of the picture there, uh, we've got a big thank you to the BBC for a day of masterclasses. But the icing on the cake for me was this one, that she said that she was now having a great session with uh, Mariana Spring. And so we've got to ask whether the training session uh, was really about how to falsify your CV. So really the standard of journalism just appalling. And of course, what did that journalist not do? Cover any facts, look at any detail or any real criticism about information that the mainstream media is putting out. Now, Debbie, let's bring you back at this stage because you've been having a look at uh, um, the Trusted News Initiative. Trusted News Initiative. Should we trust the Trusted News Initiative? Uh, no, I don't think so. So for anybody that thinks that I'm a conspiracy theory uh, theorist because uh, I believe that the BBC is in cahoots with pretty much all the other globalists, then let's just look at the Trusted News Initiative. So I caught this uh, from a blog um, from Jennifer Brown, who uh, doesn't mince her words, and she says, to be blunt, the TNI, the Trusted News Initiative, means global information control. Every single one of us are living under this initiative right now. So when I sort of went a little bit deeper into the article, you can see that it was founded in 2019. I know the UK column has covered this before, so I'm just going to just very briefly highlight what uh, what this is. And this is a, a Google, Facebook, BBC, YouTube, Twitter, New York Times, Microsoft and Reuters and plenty of other companies. And uh, what I found particularly surprising was, did you know that out of thousands of mainstream television channels available to us, they are all owned by only six companies, Time Warner, Viacom, CBS, Disney, National Amusements and Television Corps. So how do they, how do they operate? So when I went to carried on with the article, and it seems that they operate by neutralizing information that they they don't want shared, and then they flood you with information that they do want shared. So this is pretty much saying that um, if it's on TV, any of the news is on TV, then it's right, but everybody else is wrong. And anyone that dares to question the narrative is potentially a conspiracy theorist. But then I went to look at it in a little bit more detail and I found that the BBC on the on BBC website, uh, the Trusted News Initiative, was talking about Project Origin. 
Now, Project Origin is a collaboration between media and tech. So we're expanding it. They're kind of expanding their tentacles to pretty much everything. So we're talking CBC, Radio Canada, the European Broadcasting Union, Reuters, Australia. Um, I mean, the list goes on. And then the next slide, again, is looking at um, Project Origin because I didn't know that Project Origin even existed. And you can see that this is all completely surrounded by the BBC. I just wanted to have these, this screenshot and the next uh, slide, just so that viewers could maybe freeze the screen, tweet it, share it, because we are all under control of these, these organisations quite openly. And I think we've got a little tiny bit of video that we might have that might explain the Trusted News Initiative a little bit more. What is the Trusted News Initiative, or TNI? Simply, Global Information Control. The Trusted News Initiative was founded in 2019 by UK's state broadcaster, the BBC, and its global media and big tech partners. The TNI's big pharma backers had a vaccine agenda in mind from the start. The TNI issued a warning in 2019 that anti-vaxxers are gaining traction across the internet, requiring algorithmic intervention. That means very smart computer programs to identify, attack, and neutralize anti-vaccine content. How does the TNI work? Flooding your screen with repetitive pro-vaccine messages that normalize the experimental vaccine. They demonize the unvaccinated to create division and drive public acceptance of vaccine compliance. The TNI also pays off so-called fact-checkers to run false fact-checks and hit pieces on scientists and journalists who buck the official narrative. Hundreds of frontline medical professionals, scientists, researchers who dare to speak out against the official narrative, gone, disappeared from social media by the TNI. They didn't ask approved questions. They didn't come to approved conclusions. So now, top doctors from Harvard, Stanford, and Oxford are dangerous experts who must be neutralized. TNI director Jessica Cecile complains that anti-vax content often includes interviews with people who have medical degrees. There is frequently a grain of truth to what is claimed. That makes untangling the false hard. They attack early treatments that cure COVID because they feel it poses a threat to the vaccine agenda. The TNI network also ignores stories of tens of thousands that have been injured by COVID vaccines in order to promote the false narrative that they are safe and effective. It's not just careers the TNI is destroying, but real lives as it suppresses the true numbers on vaccine adverse effects and early treatment protocols. Who's paying for this harmful suppression of science? You are. We are. We pay taxes. The government pays Big Pharma, and Big Pharma spends almost $7 billion advertising with TNI corporations. TNI companies also have pharma investments, massive conflicts of interest. See how that works? And at the beginning of the pandemic, when it mattered, when the truth could have helped science find the origin of COVID, the TNI aggressively shut down all inquiry into this. They called scientists who simply raised the question of virus origin as a lab leak from the Wuhan lab conspiracy theorists. A year later, the so-called conspiracy theory has been deemed the most plausible scenario. The Trusted News Initiative promotes disinformation while keeping the true science from us. Well, I don't trust the Trusted News Initiative, and it's certainly not a conspiracy theory. It's very real. 
It's very real and uh, BBC in there, of course, Debbie. And uh, as I highlighted earlier in the news today, remember those embedded democracy reporters in all the local newspapers so that the centralised control from the government and the BBC is embedded in what we believe are independent local newspapers. Well, let's move on. And of course, as we always say, if you like what the UK column is doing, then uh, please join us. And uh, we particularly encourage you to take out a subscription with us and join the community, because apart from anything else, this allows you to have a chat with other people who are seeing what you are now starting to see. You can also help us by buying something from the UK Column Shop. And I'm pleased to say that uh, the shop is now being um, thoroughly reorganised in our new location. And uh, there's going to be some exciting additions to that in the future. So keep an eye open. And uh, of course, we do what we do in order to get the information out and share what we put out as widely as possible. So if you can help us do that, we would be very grateful. Now, I'd like to um, just remind people of the On Guard for the Liberty of Mankind event with Children's Health Defence Europe, Saturday, the 30th of September. And uh, of course, Mike Robinson has been showing this ad with the speakers. Uh, Mike is there now in Sweden uh, to, and he's involved and of course being uh, going to be very interested in what's being said. Um, but uh, we can also say that uh, tomorrow at eight o'clock in the morning, this event will be live streamed on the UK Column channels and the community website, the UK Column community website. So we suggest this might be well worth getting up a little bit early uh, with your cup of tea and uh, a lot of work put into this event by the team in Sweden and uh, with some work by Mike Robinson, uh, this is going to be brought to you. So please make the best use of that. Now, we'd also like to just uh, remind people about the bunch of flowers for Pfizer. This was an interview, Debbie Evans, Chris Flowers and Cheryl Granger. And this has apparently been very popular and so we're saying to other people, have you seen this yet? If not, get onto the UK Column website and have a look. And uh, I'd also like to remind people that we've got the AV uh, conference coming up Sunday, the 22nd of October. Uh, there are a few tickets remaining, just a few. So if you uh, think that you would like to go, you need to get in there and get that ticket. Or if you think somebody else would like to go, uh, please give them a little reminder because those tickets will be gone soon. So get in there and uh, make a purchase. Now, uh, Debbie, your blog has just gone up. Would you like to say a few things about that? Yes, I'd be delighted to. Of course, NHS, of course. Um, and when does the NHS organ donation and the passport, uh, the passport office merge together could that be a red flag i think it might be viewers might like to go and have a look because you might be getting more than you bargained for if you're applying for a passport and the mhra uh, the hostile greeting from professor cook i've transcribed it into my blog um, it's really very hostile welcome from professor cook who's a non-executive director of the mhra so that and a lot more in this week's blog thank you 
Okay, thank you for that, Debbie. Now, I'm just going to mention this one because I know this is a very poignant, difficult one for you, but um, some time ago, a few weeks ago, you were mentioning that a man had died in the custody of Devon and Cornwall Police while he's been transported in a police van to the police station. The BBC is finally reporting this. Two police constables under criminal investigation. This is their report. People can freeze this on screen, see the detail. Um, but uh, it's, it says that an independent office for police conduct investigation was launched in July after Stephen Reardon, 34, died after becoming unwell while in custody. Now, you'd ask for the identity of the police officers to be revealed, but they are still not revealing the name. And the point that you made very strongly, Debbie, was if it was anybody else, their names would be plastered all over the media at the moment, but it appears not for police officers who are under investigation. Now, I'll just move on to this one. Um, uh, well done to our audience viewer. Uh, this is somebody that challenged Oxford County Council over the TAR drag queen training event for children. And uh, what this individual had done is said, where was the risk assessment? And as a result of a freedom of information request, Oxford County Council has now had to admit it does not hold that information. And that is because, of course, they have not done and did not do a risk assessment on the event. Now, the person said to me, well, this is all a bit disappointing. And I sent back an email saying, please don't be disappointed at the outcome as your efforts have worked extremely well. This is a very important exchange because public money was used to support the TART event. And in any case, the local authority has an automatic responsibility for child protection. You have demonstrated that the council was not concerned with a possible child protection, child safety issue, and failed to undertake any sort of risk assessment. Can I suggest that your next email is to throw their response back in the face of the chief executive and the council leader to ask for comment. This is, again, a positive result of your efforts. It's not always big results that make the difference, but little steps that start the cracks in the organisation. So I'm going to say to our viewer, well done. And for other viewers, you can make a difference if you say no and you take action to call out the wrongdoing by the local authorities and individuals concerned. Now, Debbie, let's um, bring you back on screen. You, you are about to take us into a very serious area. We had a little bit of discussion before today's news on uh, this subject because it is so difficult and we know it's dark, but we came to the conclusion that as responsible adults, we need to talk about what's really happening. Uh, what have you got to tell us? Yes, we do. Well, we've been talking about assisted dying. We've been talking about end-of-life care pathways. We've been also talking about the thousands. I dread to think how many people have died from midazolam and morphine administration. Um, so what happens if end-of-life care goes wrong? And you'll know that previously we've been speaking about how it seems to be just seeping in to the UK. And I took this article from The Guardian, um, which was entitled, No One Should Be Dying of an Eating Disorder in 2023. Um, and as you know, we've been talking about the seed pathway. As we look further into that article, the article was written by a lady called Dorothy Dunn. Um, and she's been reflecting on the news of the um, 
the fact that the seed pathway, the end of life care uh, pathway will be offered to some people with anorexia nervosa. So uh, we've been asking ourselves, is this the first stage of even more to come? And in March, uh, just this year, there was an inquiry into assisted dying. You've got the story there from The Guardian. Now, this is a story about um, hearing from people who have faced unbearable suffering, um, even on end-of-life care pathways. And, and I think this is where it, it gets, we, we start to muddy the water because are we looking at some people who are so um, scared of the end-of-life pathway and what happens when it goes wrong that they may be looking towards an assisted suicide instead? So I want to draw your attention back to Voice of Justice, an incredible organisation who um, have published uh, When End of Life Care Goes Wrong. Now, this is just a part of the summary that you can find as a PDF online. Please freeze the screen. It talks about the Liverpool Care Pathway, but it also talks about many, many stories that are absolutely horrific and should never have taken place. And if anybody wants to grab the hard copy of that, then there is a hard copy um, available if you go to Voice of Justice. Um, there it is on the screen, the report from the Lords and Commons Family and Child Protection Group. So we've got all of this going on in the UK, but I just want to flip back to Canada because as we know, the MAID scheme is very much uh, alive, uh, pardon the pun, and well in Canada. So we're now looking at uh, euthanasia houses. This is a, in, an article in the Right to Life News where an organization wants to set up euthanasia houses in, in Canada. Now, this has been proposed by a euthanasia group. They're made up of euthanasia advocates, so they call themselves. And according to their report, they're saying that 125 people used their euthanasia house, but they've been having trouble Getting, pro uh, getting premises, I wonder why. But it was also quite shocking, I found, that a funeral home in Canada has launched a personalised euthanasia service. Uh, so for $700, you can, uh, have, uh, you can watch a movie or you can drink wine as you die, um, which I found particularly shocking. But if we go and look on a little bit more into that article, we can see that um, many people are saying that they want a personalised experience and actually uh, not just a glass of wine but how about a group of people, how about dying with a group of people, perhaps four or five or maybe up to 30 people. So um, I'm sure many of our viewers are, are conjuring up some images of some of the films that we're possibly being used to seeing perhaps like Logan's Run and sadly they're one in five cite loneliness as a reason to want to die. So these made houses are non-profit organisations um, and they're devoted to providing this made service, which is the medically assisted um, in dying service in Canada. But what really shocked me, I think more than anything, was an article that I saw from BioEdge that talks about Toronto's made house. This is the only made house that there is because they can't find other premises at the moment. But um, in, it really is quite, quite shocking. As they write, it is relatively quick. A patient arrives, is killed, and an unmarked car arrives to take away the body. And I ask myself now, and I ask all of our viewers uh, watching and listening, 
when does it merge that end-of-life care becomes so unreliably bad and terrifying that people volunteer themselves for assisted suicide, including 18-year-olds who have been put on the seed pathway? And I do realise it's a very difficult subject, but I do think it's something that people need to be aware of. Debbie, I've just got to come in very uh, quickly here that, that what we are witnessing is the path to the T4 programme in Nazi Germany. This is a, a, a killing programme that was launched in Tiergrasse, uh, Strasse in Germany, where people who had mental health problems or severe deformities or birth defects uh, were murdered. And uh, we are drifting slowly but surely towards, well, it's planned, but the drift is taking us in this direction. This is very clear. Um, we have an evil, malevolent uh, government, governmental system on a global scale, which is telling us quite openly now the attention is to kill people off if they're considered no use at the end of their lives. Um, Sorry to take up that little bit of time there, but I think it needed be, to be said. Yes, no, I completely agree. Um, but let's jump on to health now. And uh, some of you might remember I've been going on a long time about antivirals and monoclonal antibodies. And you might remember, there we go, back in November 2021, the first oral antiviral for COVID-19, Molnupiravir, was approved by the um, MHRA. Um, I, I, for, for the sake of time, please freeze the screen. But clearly, you can see the comments there from Dame June Rain. Um, she says, there are no compromises on quality, safety and effectiveness. The public can trust that the MHRA has conducted a robust and thorough assessment of this data, as well as Professor Munir Per-Mohamed from the Commission of Human Medicines, who we've talked about a lot. And I can tell you that I've written plenty of FOIs about molnupiravir, so this is just the tip of the iceberg. But if we look back at my blog, um, I wrote back in 2022 my concerns about molnupiravir because molnupiravir was actually, um, it was an innovation from a, a pharmaceutical company called Ridgeback and it was binned right from the, from the get-go. It was way too dangerous. And then it was revived by Merck. And my, my worries, my huge worries were that molnupiravir was only being rolled out in the UK and it was completely prohibited for pregnant women. It was that dangerous. And there was a big uh, tr uh, trial called the panoramic trial going on, which was stopped. And I felt so strongly about molnupiravir and antivirals such as remdesivir and Paxilovid that I even brought it up with Sir Christopher Chope. Um, and you can see there from the transcript, I'm talking about molnupiravir is a black triangle medicine. And I was extremely concerned about it. Now, um, I've got more news on molnupiravir. Um, I think I might have said something on the news as well about molnupiravir. So let's see what I said way back last year. As you will all remember, I've been um, championing the cause to take away and remove Molnupiravir, very, very dangerous antiviral uh, manufactured by Merck. It's been, um, it was literally thrown out at the first clinical studies and the FDA, um, well, Merck managed to get approval for it. They should never have got approval for it. Molnupiravir was rolled out in the UK first. The panoramic study was set up because there were so many serious adverse reactions. Pregnant women 
were um, absolutely told not to take molnupiravir. It's one of these drugs to keep you out of hospital. So if you tested positive for COVID, you would get a course of molnupiravir, 500 quid a course. Now it's been stopped. It is completely ineffective. So anybody that's been receiving molnupiravir should be aware of this, that it has been deemed ineffective and the panoramic study has stopped. So I think I was quite clear there that I had serious concerns about molnupiravir and I was quite right to be concerned about molnupiravir because only this week a story came out on Sky, it's on pretty much all of the mainstream media, which says that molnupiravir actually uh, leads to further infection. So anybody that has had molnupiravir is likely to become sicker and if they're autoimmune suppressed, it's likely to cause more autoimmune suppression. So this was one of our warnings that we put out a long time ago about molnupiravir. And I have to stress to people, please check, give due diligence to what you're taking. Remember, there are two names of drugs. The active ingredient is on the patient information leaflet. If your drug ends in VIR, VIR, it is an antiviral. And if it ends in MAB, it's likely to be a monoclonal antibody. So please do due, due diligence. And uh, coming back up to date, uh, the NHS are very proud of themselves because they're announcing that they've delivered 1 million COVID vaccines in one week. Uh, 2.8 million have received flu jabs at the same time. But of course, we know that there's no safety data for both jabs to be given at the same time. Uh, the NHS have delivered jabs to 4,616 care homes. That's a quarter of the care homes so far. They've sent 1.5 mil million eligible adults invites and uh, 1.2 million texts and emails have been sent to two to three, about two to three year olds to parents with regards to the flu and catching up on the MMR. And the NHS are calling this a life-saving vaccination programme. Uh, but that's not all. They're targeting pregnant women as well. So pregnant women are being asked to attend one of the 5,000 sites. So these jabs are being rolled out even though they might not be on the mainstream news all the time, they are certainly being rolled out. And I'd like to thank Alan, one of our viewers, very much. He sent a flyer that he'd received from his child's school. And there you go. It says, are there any side effects of the vaccine? Lots of questions, lots of facts and useful information. And um, thanks to Alan, he sent his reply that he sent to the school. Uh, and he said, hello, local immunization team. This flyer contains blatant lies the flu jab and mist do not protect against flu for a start a random version of flu is guessed as for the jab mist which is utterly insane and there is the issue of original antigenic sin when the body learns a response specifically for what is in the vaccine and the response can be inadequate for the version of flu going around and make your body throw out the wrong response then there is the issue of virus theory versus terrain theory. Now, clearly, please freeze the screen and read the rest of it for time. I won't. But thank you so much to Alan for sending in that. And to parents, keep an eye on what's coming through at school because you might not know necessarily what's going on behind closed doors. And finally, a good news story at long last. Thank you so much to Ruth because I'd asked in my blog, has anybody got any good stories about the NHS or is it all doom and gloom? And it isn't. And Ruth sent me a very long uh, email. I've just taken a little snippet of it there, but 
basically she was very happy with the treatment that her partner David had. Uh, the staff in intensive care were fantastic in high dependency unit were fantastic. The nurses were great, but even though they were short staffed, they gave him the best possible treatment. So to end on a, a really good note that there are good stories still going on in the NHS. There are good staff and there are some very happy patients. Debbie, thank you very much. And thank you very much for ending on a positive note. I'm just going to add uh, that, of course, if anybody has got any illness or any concerns about uh, their well-being, they should consult their GP. But of course, do also do your own research and think about what the UK column is saying. We must end there. I'm going to say a very big thank you to Sandy. Uh, to Sandy Adams for joining us today. Sandy, it's been great to have you as a, a full member of the news. So thank you very much for that. A big thank you to you, Debbie, for your excellent research as always. And a special thank you to Stephanie, our producer, who's been working very hard on her own in the background. That's it for today's UK Column News. As always, thank you to our viewers and listeners and our supporters. We can only do this with your financial support and you've been amazingly generous to us so thank you very much if you're um, a subscriber stay with us we will be having extra in a few minutes bye bye